The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, The Tree is a Colander edition. It's Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017, and on today's show, Logan Lucky, the new caper from Steven Soderbergh, it's been called Ocean's Eleven for Red State America, will discuss. Then, the eclipse briefly distracted us from everything else happening in the world. We watched it together in Brooklyn, and we'll also discuss with David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, who experienced... And finally, after Charlottesville, many companies began to cut internet services of various kinds to white supremacist sites and to white supremacists themselves. Is this progress or a dangerous precedent? Today, I'm joined as always by Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hi, Dana. Hey, Julia. Uh, And since Steve Metcalf is still on vacation, we're joined by managing producer of Slate Podcasts, June Thomas. Hey, Julia, Dana. It is so fun to have June on the show. Thank you. Uh, let's get into it. Logan Lucky is uh, the new film from Steven Soderbergh, who declared, I think, four years ago that he was done with film. But he's back. Phew. We love Steven Soderbergh. Uh, with Logan Lucky, which stars Channing Tatum and Adam Driver and tells the story of two brothers who try to pull off a heist at a NASCAR race in order to get money to make their various problems go away. Uh, let's listen to a clip. Yesterday, as you were leaving the bar, you said the word cauliflower. That's right. I didn't. The last time you said that word to me, I ended up getting sent down for six months. It was juvie. I was 13. And you were supposed to be the lookout, now weren't you? Being that I was your kid brother, I let you lead me into trouble with all your crazy cauliflower plans. My life of crime is over. But you did make breakfast this morning. Even burned the bacon like I like and you ate. I also saw you have some sort of robbery to-do list. I know this attempt to be organized is a big step for you, so go. Charlotte Motor Speedway. All right, Dana, please tell us what you thought of this film. I want you guys to help me with this film. I mean, I'm, I was very excited for it because, like you said, Steven Soderbergh is such a welcome presence on theatrical screens. And I don't think any of his fans really believed he was gone from the movies for long. But it's it's good that he took a break. I mean, I think of his break as kind of a creative sabbatical. He did a lot of TV. He did The Nick, which we talked about on this show, produced, executive produced a lot of things. And, uh, and I thought that he would maybe come back with a bigger bang or turning some new page or you would sort of feel like, ah, now these insights that he's gathered on his on his rest are going to be all seen on the screen. And while this movie is enjoyable for long stretches and Channing Tatum is wonderful in it, I was distinctly underwhelmed. And one of the reasons why I think you can hear in that clip is that the performances just all seem to grate in these oddly different registers. I really did not like Adam Driver's performance in this movie. And I like Adam Driver a lot. I find him this fascinating presence, loved him in Girls. I think he's really well cast in the, the Star Wars thing, too. But something about that the register in which he performs there, and you can really hear it in that clip, seems insulting to sort of red state hillbillies like he's playing in this show. And I'm allowed to say hillbilly because my dad's from West Virginia, like the characters <laughs> in this movie. And and just just wrong, just sort of too satirical, too comic, too kind of corn pone cartoon rooster. And he didn't seem like Channing Tatum's brother at all. I don't know. I think and Daniel Craig, too, who plays one of their accomplices in the in the heist, had a strangely pitched performance that was 
sort of funny and gonzo in parts, but then menacing in other parts. And I, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't think this hung together as a heist. I didn't really understand the story of how they held up the speedway. At a certain point, I sort of threw away my high expectations and just went with enjoying a pleasant romp. But I didn't see as much more than that. June, what did you make of this film? I liked it more than Dana. The heist genre is one that's a balance of kind of predictable. You 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 know how a heist movie is going to, the shape of it. You know how it's going to work out. But you like to be surprised by the particular workings of it and a little bit confused. A little bit of confusion is actually desirable because the ideal situation after you leave that kind of movie is to kind of be figuring, so wait, was there a gap there or did how did what was that for? You know, you want to set that emotion and not be completely solved but not seem complete nonsense, which is which worked for me. That's how I left the movies. Kind of what were the cockroaches about? Things like that. Um, and although I know exactly what you mean about the accents especially, um, I did not find it condescending. I did not find it insulting to people from West Virginia, to working class people, to working class whites, which is everybody in the film more or less. I mean, it's mildly, I would say, condescending in spots, not insulting. And Soderbergh is a Southerner himself, so he right. grasps something about that atmosphere. It's it's not as if he's some sort of elitist brushing them right, off his right. shoe. And, I th- and the reason that I, and I'm always exceptionally attuned for that kind of insult. And I've thought that for a movie, which is a mainstream movie, you know, with some Soderberghian, you know, twists, the people who are supposed to be from West Virginia do not seem like Angelinos for the most part putting on accents. I mean, the clip that we heard does not give that impression because you're just like, what accent is Adam Driver doing? But they felt like people who were not like the people that I live among, but they were good people and like, ev- I mean, to a, to a problematic extent, like everyone was good, except a couple of people that were going to rip off or like the bad people were so unbelievable because he had to make the... Like wh- Seth MacFarlane's character, Seth right? MacFarlane's British character. British race car driver. Yeah, or not driver, but a impresario kind of thing. Oh, a, yeah, right. a, An energy drink impresario and race team owner. And also like a woman who was mean in the salon who then gets taken advantage of and used as part of the heist. Like not everybody is good, but we have to signal why they're not good. But I also I think that there was a, re- a sort of a reasoning behind that, because, again, part of the heist movie structure is you always have to underestimate the people trying to conduct it. You always have to think that can't work or he's too dumb or he's too much of a redneck. And in fact, I thought he was particularly effective at making us underestimate these people in the way that was very believable to me, because people like that are typically underestimated. And so I, while being exceptionally kind of ready to be, you know, icked out by the presentation of working class people, I actually felt like it was flawed, but um, but really quite satisfactory. Well, I would like to register my vote as extremely icked out by the presentation of working class people. I thought this movie did not work at all. I thought it was like a complete, I did not even get to the place of pleasant, unthinking enjoyment in it. I thought that it felt very herky-jerky in its machinery. I agree with you that it's the performances of Adam Driver and Daniel Craig that make it harder to make it feel less Soderberghian to me. Like if you think of the Ocean's Eleven movies, everybody's in the same movie. (laughs) You know, they're all kind of on the same page about what kind of caper heist movie is being made. And nobody is kind of bringing in what felt to me like 
sort of, like I said, gonzo kind of ego performances. Yeah. I mean, what I kept imagining. So so I think your note about the question of whether you think they can pull it off or not and the underestimating, overestimating uh, impulse in someone watching a heist movie is really important, June. And we should return to that because I think it unlocks one of the mechanisms of the movie that didn't work for me. But this movie felt to me very uh, thinly sketched in its view of this kind of cornpone West Virginia world where everybody's obsessed with the John Denver song about West Virginia and there's a beauty pageant daughter and there's an ex-wife named Bobby Joe. Yeah, like everything was so on the nose and and Soderbergh is such a careful craftsman that maybe that's the point. But it it you know, he's someone who has done really fascinating portraits of different parts of the South. I mean, Sex mm-hmm. Lies and Videotape took place in the South. Magic and Mike. Magic Mike as we discussed on the show, is like the the central cultural portrait of the economic crisis, in my view. Like, it's the best I hate cultural. It's the best cultural work. Oh, really? That's another whole segment. Jane hates Magic Mike. <laughs> About, like, economic displacement and masculinity in America in the last decade. And everyone in that movie is in the same movie. And I, I think of one characteristic of Soderbergh movies is this... Um, kind of smoothness and assuredness of tone. Like everybody, yes, everybody feels like they're in the same movie. And and the Daniel Craig character here really, just every time you watched him, you were like, well, that's James Bond. He's, I've read about how he isn't having fun being James Bond. And he's really having fun putting on this weird accent and pretending to be a, a like ex- demolitions, ex- expert. demolitions expert yokel punk or whatever he is. Uh, um, and it seems sort of like he was making fun of the American South. It seemed like Adam Driver was holding everything at arm's length. Um, And, uh, you know, so none of that worked for me. And then I think you're about the underestimation thing. So part of the fun of the Ocean series is all of the profession of competence, right? So they they believe they can pull it off. They've assembled the crack team to do it. You get the little introduction to each character that helps explain why this is the character that can achieve this mm-hmm. and you know help them achieve this complicated Rube Goldberg plot um and in this movie you basically assume that they can't it seems impossible you presume you know there's the whole question of whether they're cursed and they could ever do anything this nutso they don't actually explain the plot particularly well up front so you're left a little confused about both what you think happens in the first as the movie goes along and then what has actually happened when they reveal that there's been a little bit of uh, behind-the-scenes chic- behind chicanery at the mm-hmm. end. Like, that reveal isn't particularly satisfying because it's not like you really fully grokked the, the first plot exactly. in the first there's place. There's a montage at the end that's supposed to show all these twists, like, but you didn't know that so-and-so was doing such-and-such, and, such, and none of those things really clarified the plot very much. They did for me. They do. It, you, you, but you don't know it when it's happening. Yes. Yeah, and you get it after the fact. And, and it, So anyway, so fun- yeah. fundamentally what it's doing is it's collecting this set of characters, asking you to basically assume they can't pull it off, uh, not explain how they might pull it off, basically think they've failed to pull it off, and then you kind of uh, think, realize maybe they were smarter about pulling it off than you thought, but then also the federal agent who's dogging them, you're, like, you're not quite sure at the end whether they've pulled it off. And so fundamentally, it's a heist movie that thwarts your desire to take joy in the heist movie. Which is maybe a larger social point because I do believe that Steven Soderbergh is all wise and all knowing and maybe this is what he's (laughs) trying to get us to do. But the combination between like, it it just felt like it was making fun of his characters to me the whole time. I 
I, to defend the movie, I, f- I know what you're saying, but to me, the reason that, so the, without giving too much away, uh, Channing Tatum, is, who is the mastermind, doesn't read everyone into all of the complexities. And I think that that is intentional because the people that he's working with, unlike the folks in Ocean's Eleven, don't necessarily believe in themselves. They either believe they're cursed, which as Tony Scott said in his review in the New York Times, we can talk about luck or we can talk about their social situation and their class situation. Uh, And, you know, that it's very believable to me that they wouldn't believe in themselves. And so he knows that they don't believe in themselves. And so he doesn't read them all completely in because he knows that they can do it, but he doesn't. He suspects that maybe they don't believe in themselves enough to think that they can. So that worked for me. I don't know if that is textual or extra textual, but that was kind of part of the, of the fun for me. And I would also say that those very sort of stereotypical West Virginia things like the John Denver song, like beauty pageants, are in themselves all complicated or undercut. Yes, his daughter Sadie is in beauty pageants, but by the end she decides she doesn't really want to be. She also knows every spanner and every tool in the toolbox and can hand him, you know, uh, I don't even know the names of those tools, but like she knows every single tool and she's actually, she's more than just a beauty queen. Um, the, there are big gaps in it. I, I, I'm still not fully sure of the reasons for doing the, um, the heist. You know that typically in a heist movie you have some evil person or some evil entity. And even though there was one force of evil that was established, it isn't clear to me that that's what's being ripped off here. Uh, so you know I'm not defending it as like the greatest movie ever, but I don't, I don't think that it is as. I don't know. Condescending isn't quite the word, but I don't think it is as tone deaf um, socially and sociologically as as you have read it. I definitely thought that that sentence in Tony Scott's review was very smart and uh, that the the question of what role people's conceptions of luck play mm-hmm. into their self-conception when actually various social forces have conspired to make them poor and powerless. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a really interesting movie. <laughs> I do not think this movie successfully uh, contrived like a pop plot that actually had resonances along those lines. It seems like it had the ingredients for those things, but to me it didn't quite come together. And But it's worth noting that more people feel like June or even like Tony Scott, who straight out loved the movie, than uh, than than like us. It got a really warm critical reception. People seem to be responding. Yeah, no, I I espouse the view that it is a terrible film on Slate's internal culture aliases and was roundly chided and uh, and told to <laughs> told very politely that I was incredibly wrong. <laughs> uh, I will continue to eagerly await uh, the future output of Steven Soderbergh and Channing Tatum, but maybe not Daniel Craig. Uh, All right. If you saw Logan Lucky and have thoughts about it or the rest of Soderbergh's career, please join us at Facebook.com slash CultureFest and we can discuss this film further. All right. Before we move on to our second segment, Dana, do you have uh, any business to share with our audience? 
Yes, we do. We have a few items on the agenda here. First of all, September 13th at 7 p.m. at the Toronto Reference Library is our first live show in Toronto, Canada, in collaboration with the Toronto Public Library and the Toronto International Film Festival, which will be going on at that time. Tickets are free, and they become available at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on August 23rd, the very date that this episode of the GabFest is released. So go and get those free tickets because they will go fast. We're also going to do a cocktail after party at a nearby location. So if you check Slate.com live, you can get a link to get the free tickets and buy tickets for the after party, which will also get you into the show. Our Slate podcast pick this week is Hang Up and Listen, hosted by Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis. It's a sports talk show for people who hate sports talk shows. And every week they talk about the athletes, teams and controversies that make up the landscape of sport. This week they talked about sports after Charlottesville and Adam Hootnick's new film, What Carter Lost, about the intersection of race and sports in a 1998 Texas high school. So check out Hang Up and Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about Princess Diana's death. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of her death in a car crash in 1997. And June, as someone who was in Britain at the time, is going to talk to us about what it was like to be there at that historic moment. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, where fans of Slate and of our podcasts help support us. If you like this podcast and find it valuable, joining Slate Plus is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing these shows And in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, Julia, what's next? It is time to talk about the eclipse for the first time in in years and not until anon shall we do it again. Dana and June and I experienced the partial eclipse uh, in a crowded Brooklyn Plaza, along with some other folks, among them Dana's daughter and uh, fellow Slate podcaster Mike Pesca, also hordes of other office workers and other Slatesters. Uh, We are going to play for you all a little audio montage of our Plaza partial eclipse experience, and then we will discuss. We are standing in the plaza with lots of people from both Slate and the world generally. And people are trying to figure out how to see the eclipse without blinding themselves. Uh, There are people with boxes. There are people with pinhole cameras. There's a magnifying glass. There's an array of office workers in the plaza all not looking at the sun. It's just after 2 o'clock right now. And if you look through the proper device, you can see, what would you say it looks like? A toenail of... It's like a thick crescent moon shape. Right, kind of like a thick toenail clipping is just all you can see. Um, so we have like a reflective surface on a piece of paper, um, and we're shining it on a white piece of paper on the ground, and we can see this sliver of sun that's not being blocked by moon um, reflected on the paper. That's actually really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And there are people coming, gathering around to take a picture of the piece of paper, which I have to say I love that moment. That in this in the 21st century of technology, we're all ooing and aahing at a white piece of paper with a toenail shadow on it. Wow, that's so fantastic! I was using eclipse glasses over my real glasses to look up at the eclipse. They are a gajillion times darker than sunglasses, and you see basically a field of black and a small orange crescent sun, not crescent moon, and it's pretty cool. I am now. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. There we go. All right. 
Huh. I was using the MTV Eclipse glasses. Here's the thing. Once you've looked through the Eclipse glasses, all the other methods look a little bit dull. And you're like, eh, that's okay, but the glasses were better. Which is like sad to, instead of feeling excited, you're like, eh, not as good as the other thing. Ooh, it is kind of weird night now, right? I'm just noticing. Like it feels more like early evening light, <laughs> maybe? Yeah. Or, you know that weird green light, like when there's going to be a big storm? So we just discovered upon moving that one of the trees is filtering the light in such a way through the holes in the leaves that we're getting a lot of little moon shapes cast on the ground. It's basically an infinity of little eclipses. I'm taking a picture right now. And they're moving. It's just the most beautiful effect. So what did you, overall, were you disappointed in the eclipse or were you surprised? It was better than I thought. It was also lighter than I thought. I was picturing everybody like boinking into each other because they couldn't see anything. In total darkness. And like you wouldn't even be able to see the eclipse, but you can actually see it rather than... I think there were places in the country where it looked like nighttime and you could see the stars. That's cool. Yeah. It's just amazing that we could all come together in the name of science to marvel at the natural world and then collectively as a group go back to denying global warming. Well, I, we've said our piece. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a response to June from that segment. I just I take issue with the idea that after you look through the eclipse glasses, everything else was disappointing. But I remember that sensation clearly from the previous solar eclipse I've seen in my oh. life because I vaguely remember the 1979 one. I was a kid. I was about the age my daughter is uh -huh. now. And, uh, and I remember... National Geographic and other magazines coming with punch-out glasses that you could wear and learning to make a pinhole camera in school and talking about how you couldn't look directly at the sun and it would hurt your eyes and thinking, what a bummer, that's such a <laughs> rip-off, and, uh, and which was sort of how my child at first responded before having the experience, which she thought was really neat. But yesterday, I actually really, really loved... The, the humanity of needing these yeah. optical devices and being these like mortal flesh creatures who will be burned by the ball of fire that gives us life. I mean, there was something there was something about all of these strangers in this plaza. I mean, some there was a bunch of slate people, but there were also just, you know, tons of random people from New York just trading glasses and talking about what was going on. And I just love that we were all fumbling and trying to use anything from a pinhole and a piece of paper to a leaf on a tree to a cereal box with holes in it to look at this marvel in the sky. I think the mediation was as moving to me yeah. and the sort of conversations about optical devices, et cetera, as the actual celestial event itself. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. I, you know, come to this office every day. I don't really speak with people, maybe a, maybe an occasional hello in an elevator. And yesterday there was some dude I've never seen before who I now suspect works at the engineering school that's in our building who was kind of helping me uh, kind of get the box in the right I remember direction. the cereal box guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, because I, you know, was like, I was dismissing it because I just couldn't figure out how to use it. And he was helping me in that experience of a stranger helping stranger is exceedingly rare, not just in the city, I think everywhere. I mean, we're going to talk to David Plotz, who experienced the totality in Oregon, I think, uh, in a few moments, uh, former slate editor, excellent person. But it, there actually was something really moving about the accidental eclipsers yesterday, like people who didn't, are not astronomy buffs who've organized their summer in order to go experience totality, but just the people who were like having a normal Monday and then kind of caught wind that something was afoot or on their way back from lunch, saw all these people standing around like little kids in a science class with weird boxes and devices and, you know, chattering and sharing glasses. I completely agree that the collective humanity of people 
accidentally uh, experiencing this thing together was really moving. And Netflix, I think, tweeted last night that viewership was down, I think, 10 or 20 percent during the eclipse. Yeah. Which is just so great. Everyone had to get outside and experience the world together. How beautiful. Yeah. There was a, a weird peer pressure. Like typically peer pressure is to do bad things. This was, come on, let's go outside. You only, you only have to take 10 minutes. You don't have to, you know, you still get all your work done. It's not a big commitment, but let's just go and have this experience, which also is free. I have to admit, though, that there were times when I thought we were ooing and aahing over things that were very barely visible. Like it was super cool that the shit was projected onto the piece of paper. But it was tiny and it, you know, and, you know, when I, when people were first talking about the trees, which, um, as you explained, Julia, they, the leaves on the trees kind of acted like pinhole cameras. And so I believe my quote uncaptured by our audio montage is the tree is a colander, guys. The tree is a colander. <laughs> that was the exact quote. Yes. <laughs> because there was someone else with an actual colander yes, trying to use Which that I also, project. you know, wrote off as bullshit uh, until I was uh, righted that like, I was like. I think there might be this kind of, you know, universal delusion that people are seeing crescent moons in the colander, which just seems so unlikely. Now, yes, I am a science know nothing, but it was only after really staring at the shadows of the leaves of the trees and thinking like, okay, yeah, there really are crescents that I was able to like get over myself a bit. But I have to admit that my first response was "Mm, people might be over-egging the pudding a little bit. Like, is, this cool, <laughs> but is it that cool? Okay, so th- then once again, I have to, let me try to express this complex chain of like stoner ideation that I had <laughs> when I saw the leaves <laughs> making the crescents. So basically the moment of awe went something like this. It was sort of like, we're on these spheres, right? We're living on these spheres of ball and fire that are suspended <laughs> in nothingness. That's already insane. Now somehow in this particular sphere, Conditions have have been created so that life has evolved. That life, in turn, has evolved into creatures that can understand that all of that is happening, right? And those creatures looking up into the sky at the ball of fire, trying to understand what's happening, are using a piece of that evolved nature, the leaves, as this piece of technology. In other words, just like nature and technology are so interwoven in that that moment that, like you say, the tree is a colander. Like the tree has become this instrument through which we can interpret the world. Just the whole thing was just so overwhelming, you know? Whereas for me, my response was, who brings a colander to work? <laughs> Why did you have that with you? But that's all part of the complexity of our exactly. human evolution. I'm just going to start using trees whenever I need to strain <laughs> pasta. All right. Well, uh, it, this would not be a total, total eclipse segment if we don't talk to someone who experienced the totality. So joining us now to explain what the eclipse was like for people who figured out that it was a thing they should pay attention to well before 1.42 p.m. (laughs) yesterday afternoon Eastern time, we have uh, the glorious, the wonderful David Plotz, currently the CEO of Alice Obscura, formerly editor of Slate, and my beloved colleague and all of our bosses. Hi, David. Hello, uh, partial eclipsers. (laughs) <laughs> That's what we like to call you, partial. Do, do, do we have to call you the totality then? <laughs> totes. Yeah, you totes, totes, total. <laughs> the difference so, between, you know, it's the difference between special K and uh, Rice Krispies. Those are like indistinguishable puffed rice cereals. That was a terrible metaphor. Those are like the same cereal. One costs $7, one costs $10. No difference otherwise. <laughs> anyway. Can you please tell us about the event that Alice Obscura convened and sort of at what point you figured out that this was the thing you guys wanted to do? And then 
what was it like? Sure. Uh, Alice Obscura is devoted to wonder and place and uh, experiencing kind of the strangeness and wondrousness of the world. So a while ago, I think probably about a year ago, we clued into the fact that the eclipse was coming. And about maybe seven or eight months ago, we thought, you know what? This is the kind of thing that the Alice Obscura folks who are really science-oriented, they're really like to travel, they like experience, it's the kind of thing they're going to love and they, we should give them uh, a chance to experience it together with us. And so, so starting about eight months ago, we put together a festival in Eastern Oregon. We looked for the spot in the country that was most likely to have clear, dry weather, uh, which was Eastern Oregon in the high desert there. And it was relatively near population centers. As for the totality, uh, it was eerie and, uh, because, of course, the buildup is quite long. So there's a very long period of almost an hour and a half where the the sun is slowly being swallowed and where, you know, you can't stare at it for the whole 90 minutes. So we had 500 people in this in this valley. And so we were all we would all look for a moment and then sort of start chatting and be like, I can't believe it. And, and, <laughs> and we had a, a harpist playing. Um, but maybe about about 10 minutes out from totality, the air and the light start to get really weird. It's already gotten slightly dark, but the air and the light start to get really weird. Um, and they're even 10 minutes out. There was so little left of the sun. You thought like, wow, really? We're not, we're still 10 minutes away. Um, but the air, uh, the air got thick almost and the light got thick. It wasn't dark, but it was a kind of, it was the closest analogy is something sort of before a thunderstorm, before a really bad thunderstorm with the, where, where the light gets funky um, and then weird things start happening with shadows and the grass is rippling in a strange way a couple of minutes before totality. Um, and then, um, then there's the Bailey's bead, which is this one little glow off the corner of the sun, uh, which is sort of, I think it's a crater. It's because the moon is not fully round. So there's like a little crater of the moon is dented there. And so there's a space uh, for light to seep through. And so there's a, one flash of light in the corner. That's the kind of iconic picture where you see uh, mostly a ring of fire, but then there's just one flash of light out the corner and everyone gasped and we all kind of gasped. And then um, <laughs> when, when the uh, totality came and you realized, Oh my God, I can look at it. It's funny because you actually realize, Oh, I can, it, it, it's no longer like, can I look at it? Can I not look at it? It's very intuitive at that moment that it's safe to look at the sun um, because there's just so little coming from it. And it's it's um, a black hole in the sky ringed by, you know, golden fire, which is quite beautiful and, of course, weird to look at. Um, and the light, it was not uh, it was not nearly total darkness. I mean, it's more like 8.30 on a summer evening kind of light or, or uh, a fall evening kind of light. Um, and it was very thick and blue and gray. And I was, um, when the totality happened, I was with next near some colleagues, but with mostly with my son and we just looked at each other and smiled and, uh, I felt, I felt ecstatically happy. I felt that sort of sense of elevation around me. People, there were people crying. There more people were tending towards silence, although there were some cheers during the totality lots of kind of gasps. And when I talked to people afterwards, people said they felt a sense of awe and wonderment. And some people described laughing and crying at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the totality ended, so we had about, 
I think about slightly less than two minutes where we were, uh, there was, uh, we all cheered. I mean, that was sort of a spontaneous cheer. And then maybe took a couple of minutes for the light to filter back up. And then sort of people started going around hugging and saying, I can't believe it. How, that was incredible. That was incredible. Um, and actually nobody really stayed for the, the de-eclipsing everyone. Once, once we'd experienced the totality, the kind of partial eclipse, the, you know, hour of partial eclipse left, people, you know, they would stare up at the sky for a minute and Sun Ra, we had Sun Ra and his orchestra oh, playing. And so we had wow. a celestial concert. But, um, but then people sort of just dispersed like we've done it. Well, thank you so much for coming and telling us partials what life was like for a total. Uh, I hope to see you soon. Bye, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, David. That was awesome. All right. Well, that was our review of the eclipse. If you want to share your own thoughts, photos, experiences, uh, please come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. For our final topic today, we wanted to take stock of a set of actions that different internet companies have taken with regard to white supremacist sites and white supremacists using their sites and services since Charlottesville, because they do raise a fascinating set of questions about speech and the neutrality of internet systems uh, that's worth thinking through in a considered way. So among the things that have happened, uh, in the run-up to Charlottesville, Airbnb realized that the website, The Daily Stormer, which was helping to organize the hate rally, uh, recognized that some of those uh, ralliers and white supremacists were using Airbnb to lodge their crowds, um, and they canceled the accounts of people whom they recognized to be doing that. Subsequent to the violence in Charlottesville, GoDaddy, which is a domain name registrar, canceled uh, service to the Daily Stormer, which is, again, a site that had been used to organize some of these events. Uh, they quickly shifted their uh, domain name registry to Google. Then Google canceled their account. Uh, and they've basically been pushed off to what's known as the dark or not publicly searchable and available web. Although now I believe they're being hosted by a Russian site and are now visible again. Back up and running. Then also OkCupid, the dating service, announced that it canceled the account of Chris Cantwell, who is one of the white supremacist ralliers and who was featured in that Vice documentary um, and you know said there was no place for hate in its app uh, on which people look for love. Each of these examples, I think, has very different raises very different questions about the nature of the internet and how we should use it, and how we should, how com- the companies that run it should allow other people to use it. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, uh, first, June, what your response was to these moves, and and what you think we should be thinking about uh, with this with this wave of changes. I'm troubled by it. It's I certainly I'm in no uh, I have no desire to defend the white supremacists or to give them a bullhorn to shout through. But I'm also very worried about the sort of closing down of speech and the closing down of sites. Um, it is legal. Everything that has gone on is legal. Uh, you know, it's it's perfectly within the rights of a domain name registrar to cancel a registration. Uh, it's within the rights of OkCupid to cancel an account. Um, but I am concerned about who gets cancelled next Um, and there being clear rules about what justifies a cancellation. Um, You know, a lot of it comes down to terms of service, which are, you know, a lot of legalese that are very difficult to parse. I'm concerned by subjectivity when it comes to making that kind of decision. 
Uh, and I'm just afraid that these kinds of decisions could um, go against people whose views are controversial, but which are not uh, hate, not as hate-filled and as destructive and as violent as the people who organized or who became violent in Charlottesville. Dana, what's your response to this set of stories? You know, I, I thought Will Oremus, Slate's tech writer, who also writes a lot on media and politics now, had some really interesting things yeah. to say about this. And uh, and one of the points that he's made, I think, in other pieces before, too, is that the web is at this moment. And we see, we've see we seen this in a lot of Facebook flaps prior to Charlottesville, where various, I don't know what to call them, web entities, some of them, you know, domain name providers, some of them sites like Facebook, social media sites, Twitter has this problem all the time, are trying to decide what they are. They're in this limbo between being publishing entities and and simply, um, you know, platforms, just just neutral platforms on which people can express themselves, which in everybody's sort of ideal democracy would be these wonderful fountains of free speech. But as we've seen, I mean, you could argue that that it was Twitter that got Trump elected president, right? And it's Twitter in part that is making his presidency so toxic and deadly to us all. Um, and and so it seems like there's been this pressure, this responsibility being foisted upon those companies to step up and say, we are something more like a publishing entity. We have some filtering capacity and our job is not merely to, as Will put it, provide a megaphone to anybody who asks for one. And that feels instinctively right to me. My understanding of, of the law surrounding free speech is that it's 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 government free speech, right, that we, we, we worry about in the First Amendment. Private entities can ban whoever they want at any time. We can talk about that as a slippery slope and I think should, but I don't think the solution to that is to just level the playing field again and say all these places are just megaphones to be handed to whoever wants one. I mean, to me, the big challenge here is similar to some of the challenges around privacy, which is that in an increasingly technological world, uh, it is beyond the ken of government or any individual to to create a like their own counterpoint service to like Twitter or the internet as a whole, um, and to suggest that there's like independent or publicly available options for asshole racists who want to exercise their digital speech rights. So fundamentally, what you've got, you know, you've got the infrastructure of the internet, which is, uh, you know, at least in part accessible through like for profit companies like GoDaddy. Um, and, you know, sure, any Nazi anywhere has the right to make a website and put horrible things up on it, but no specific private or publicly traded company has an obligation to um, facilitate that if they don't want to. Like, it seems clear that the it seems like one of the things that makes these questions complicated is that the the literal web, I guess, of kind of public institutions and entities and rules and private and public but for-profit companies and nonprofit bodies that together create what the internet is, is kind of complicated and difficult to govern and not quite the same as like, well, there's just a plaza mm -hmm. and anybody who wants to can come out and shout whatever they want in the mm -hmm. plaza and like the smartest, may the smartest, fairest and least racist ideas win in the marketplace of ideas. Um, it, it, it becomes less simple in a technological world. You know, I think Will's distinction of whether these platforms are media companies or I would actually even use the phrase utility rather than right. platform because I think platforms kind of uh, can be ambiguous. Um, you know, it's are you running a utility? Are you running a media company? Are you a publisher? And then the other thing I would say is are you running a community? Um, those feel like kind of balancing tests that I've been applying mentally as I've been looking at these cases and and 
for me, the Airbnb question, where Airbnb is running a service and is basically like in some ways competing with landlords and hotels, but you know, has taken strides over the past year to take steps against racist renters who, you know, won't rent to other to black members of the community. Um, you know, I think they seem to me like they're on fairly solid ground to say if we learn that someone is using our service to foment hate, that those people can't use the service anymore. That seems reasonable. Okay, Cupid seems like it could be in a similar position and say, hey, we're a service that wants to try to uh, foment love, not hate. But as Christina Cotarucci pointed out in a very smart piece on Slate, um, uh, among the questions in the very long questionnaire that you take if you want to start a dating profile on OkCupid, you can answer whether you are opposed to interracial marriage, whether you're interested in dating someone of another race than you, you know, whether you whether having strong views about the inferiority of other races is like a deal breaker for you or not. (laughs) And basically the site thus far has been neutral on that question and probably somewhat effectively uses it to help non-racist people find non-racist mates. And the site has reported that um, racism is the single biggest deal breaker. Mm -hmm. Like it's the most popular thing to say is an absolute deal breaker in the whole questionnaire. So, you know, points for humanity there, I guess. But also it helps people who are deeply racist find each other. Um, And that's like one of the things that it has done. So for it to single out this particular racist who happened to be the subject of a viral documentary um, while the fundamental infrastructure of its site is racist friendly, um, feels less like a sincere effort to maintain a community in a certain way and more like an opportunistic pile on at a moment where lots of corporations were scoring publicity points mm-hmm. for, um, you know, saying like, not on our site. Yeah. Um, and then the GoDaddy one is the one that's the most troubling to me because. I, I just don't know how to feel about it. I mean, it's true. They've found other ways to host. And, and GoDaddy is a company that can decide what kinds of what kinds of services it wants to provide domain name registers for. But that is such a – that feels to me more like a utility than a yeah. platform and more like a, well, you want to make a thing? Here's part of how you make the thing. You know, there are a couple other of these more back-end services like Squarespace and Cloudflare that have also dealt with some of these questions over the past uh, few months. Um and then there's also Spotify, which has banned like racist rock songs. And again, that feels, yeah, that feels cr- that feels crazy to me a little bit. So uh, I, that's that's my pile of thoughts, yeah. <laughs> undifferentiated pile of thoughts. I mean, I don't know, Dana. Do you have some any sympathy to the? Should all of these platforms be considered publishers that need to take responsibility for this and stamp out hate on their sites, or is it worth drawing finer distinctions and suggesting that some of them might? be neutral utilities. It seems to me like it's probably worth drawing distinctions, but I'm not sure that I see the bright line or maybe not that bright, but the line that you just drew between GoDaddy and other hosting type sites. I mean, all of them are private companies that are either enabling or not enabling hate speech. What's more utility like about a domain name service provider than another kind of platform? Well, because it's basically just like helping that site keep the lights on as opposed to making value distinctions about like what you see or what you find or what what it surfaces or like it is literally just, uh, oh, do you need to look up and does, does your browser need to figure out where to get the pixels to make the thing appear on your 
device. Right. Like, but if we are a part of how you do that, it's like a light switch or something as opposed to a company that's saying like, well, you know, not only do we host Daily Stormer, but we like present Daily Stormer links to you and a slew of things that you want to read and we emphasize it or de-emphasize it over other things. And we, you know, it's really not a company that basically the value judgment it's making about uh, the, ser- the the services it provides is like an on-off value judgment. And this is part of the underpinning of the whole debate about net neutrality and whether these these various back-end services should be able to say like, oh, no, if you're trying to reach Netflix, Netflix can pay us to make you reach Netflix more and faster. And, and there's an, an, a whole argument that these companies must be neutral and must be utilities and that actually it's vital to the diversity of expression and opinion on the web. Um and I worry that this like chips away at that argument that's so important on on mm-hmm. one side from another angle. It does feel like GoDaddy is more like a utility. I mean, even if there's a horrible racist homophobic guy, he deserves to get running water. water. Yeah, right. and you know, if you if GoDaddy and other domain hosts um, or domain registrars refuse to serve certain people, they cannot have a home on the visible, findable, searchable web. And, you know, it. I'm just not so sure that it is so easy to define who deserves this and who doesn't. Anti-Semites, you know, grotesque racists. Yeah, I've got no love for those people. But where do we stop? And, and how much hate is acceptable? If you think the uh, Confederate monuments, as we're calling them, uh, are OK and should still be led, led to stand is that a line? Because I don't like them. I think they should be, you know, housed somewhere else. But maybe my opinion isn't, maybe, you know, my opinion is irrelevant here. You know, how much if you don't, if you know, if you're one of these, to my mind, horrendous people who believe that uh, trans people are mentally disordered, like that's actually a not such an insignificant number of people have that view. To me, it's grotesque and awful and absolutely damaging to people. But it's not that obscure or marginal of a view. Does that? It does espousing that view get people cancelled? Like, do we? You know, where do we draw the line? And I just don't think it's as easy as we imagine. You know, there there are quite, there are lines you can draw around incitement to violence, around you know the proverbial shouting fire in a crowded theater. Um, where you could imagine there arising a legal body and and you can imagine that's why people have taken action around Daily Stormer, which seems to have been organizing this. So you could say that fundamentally this is like a terrorist site that that incited a violent action and, you know, that they're wiser minds than I could look at the body of law there and say, all right, that's a line that is hard to draw that has, you know, that's not the least fraught legal doctrine we have in terms of evaluating what counts as that kind of speech. But mm-hmm. You could imagine a world where that was the line, I suppose. Right. I mean, the analogy of the utility breaks down right there, right? Because taking away someone's running water is not the same as taking away their Nazi website that's a means of organizing murder. You know, I mean, you can completely see why if a water utility found out that some individual user was collecting water in vats to drown people and they would cut water off to that person. And uh, and there's a power in that Daily Stormer website that's conferred to that person by allowing them to host the domain that goes far beyond simply, you know, here is a utility that we provide that you've paid for. I guess the other view to that, I don't know if it's an opposing view, is that, you know, we don't fight speech 
by actions, but with more speech. Uh, I mean, that feels like a very American view. Uh, I think, you know, that people like the Electronic Frontier Foundation would say that we should, you know, it's, we should let a thousand flowers bloom and, and just let a thousand different viewpoints oppose, you know, what what some of us see as hate speech. Uh, does that not, you know, isn't that the the American way? But I mean, the digital landscape changes that in some way, right? Because the the you're, you have an exponential multiplication of how many people can be reached by your hate speech. I mean, nobody is keeping Chris Cantwell from turning over a soapbox and standing around in the public square and yelling horrible stuff about people. Mm-hmm. But it's a question of you know what what organization will permit him to amplify that voice. We don't know how to weigh what it means, what speech rights mean in the digital era, um, and whether. The fear, that fear of amplification is actually a well-founded one that suggests we need to change our approach or is one where our general sense of unease and uncertainty around new technology, we, we respond by like hunching up into our shells as opposed to right. pursuing the courses that we've pursued for several centuries now. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion that has pushed my thinking. Basically, everything each of you has said, I've been like, oh, that's a good point. Oh, no, you're probably right. Oh, no, you're probably right. So I suspect that this debate will continue to unfold in the culture and in our own minds. And perhaps we'll reconvene again and bring on experts like Will and Dahlia to share their technical and legal views with us uh, as we continue to weigh this. If you, dear listeners, have thoughts or expertise to share, please come to facebook.com slash culturefest and we can continue the conversation there. Uh, all right. And now we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Well, this is something I was going to mention. I had this in my notes to mention in our clip segment, but we had such a good conversation with David that I didn't get time to squeeze this in. So I'm turning it into an endorsement. I'm leading off with a really cool fact that I learned from the thing I'm endorsing, which is the PBS Nova documentary about the eclipse that aired last night, which was annoyingly preempted by the Trump speech about Afghanistan and his horrible new ideas for policy there. But which aired shortly afterward and which will be airing, I think, throughout the week. You can also watch it online, like all PBS Novas. And there's so many cool things about this show. One of them is that it incorporates footage from the eclipse that very day. It's called Eclipse Over America. And uh, and they visit some people, actually, I believe in Oregon, maybe not far from where Plotz was observing, and interview some observers and scientists there the same day. So there must have been some crazy editing going on at PBS Nova to get this all together on the air by that night. Um, but there's a wonderful fact that I learned from it that's just one of the many mind-blowing nuggets in this documentary, which is that Okay, and I'll probably get this wrong, but this is how I remember the facts from the documentary. So the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, right? So that you would think that the moon passing across the sun would just simply make a little black dot and not blot out the entire thing to our view. But it just so happens by some accident of cosmic design that the moon is also 400 times closer to us than the sun. And they exactly, in other words, it's because of those exact proportions, ratios, that we have this effect of of totality that David was describing, which is one of those moments that you just think, oh, so wait a minute. So maybe (laughs) there is something to this, you know, clockwork, you know, clockwork in the sky business. Like it just, there's something divine about the mathematics of that. And which throws me back to my my stoner, you know, chain of thought about looking through the leaves. But, you know, that we happen to to occupy this earth where that congruence is possible is incredible. But the documentary is full of all kinds of amazing facts like that and interviews with scientists also, you know, sort of traveling around the world, watching people watch the eclipse and a really, really cool segment about the history of eclipse science, where you essentially hear about, you know, how did the ancient Babylonians experience eclipses and what kind of omen did the ancient Chinese think that eclipses represented? And that stuff is all really amazing. And just to think about how 
how humanity ever figured out what was going on before we had the technological instruments to measure it is really incredible to ponder. So the Nova PBS doc, Eclipse Over America, that's my endorsement. All right. Uh, that sounds awesome. I'm going to check that out. June, what is your endorsement? So I am reading this book, which is so good that it almost makes me not want to come to work so I can read it, but I would never do that, Julia, just for the record. Uh, and it is called The World Broke Into, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forster, D.H. Lawrence, and The Year That Changed Literature. It's by Bill Goldstein. And it's about those, you know, giants of literature in the year 1922 and how they interacted what their year was like. And the thing that's so fascinating about it, it's like an incredible, one of those incredible works of research that's very lightly worn. You just have these, like, you can see that probably entire manuscripts were scoured and one, you know, three-word quote was used from it. Um, but it's largely about how these amazing writers, their insecurities, their worries about their work and their interactions with other writers, both personally and, you know, in their social lives, but also how they reacted to works of literature that came out. So in 1922, we saw Ulysses. We also saw, you know, Proust reaching Britain and, you know, Virginia Woolf and and uh, E.M. Forster reading Proust for the first time. Uh, and it's just, it's also gossipy and it's just such a great read. I really recommend it. I haven't read a lot of the books that are under discussion, um, but that's okay because you can also just kind of experience it as a a gossip fest. But oh, that sounds fantastic. It, it really is that good. That does sound really, really good. Uh, all right. My endorsement. I would like to point our listeners to a fascinating uh, piece in two parts on Reply All, which is the technology podcast from Gimlet. I'm a sporadic Reply All listener because each of their shows is so different that I never know what I'm going to get week to week. But they've put together an investigation where they essentially just stopped and talked to a scammer who called and said, oh, you need, you know, like we're calling from Apple and we need to check your computer and this and that. Uh, and the reporter just got them on the phone and managed to get to know them as people by just calling the call center again and again and again and began to know some of the characters and began to research them and uh, set out to pursue this story uh, of people on the other side of the earth based in India who are trying to scam a bunch of people into paying $400 for antivirus software that they don't need. Um, it's a really fascinating set of reporting around scams and call centers. There's been good reporting on scams and call centers. I think in the end, this is probably not the single greatest such thing that has ever existed, but it's it's fascinating to hear it in audio since fundamentally the telephone scam is an audio scam. But eventually they pursue these con men all the way to India. And uh, what's fascinating about the show is both the subject of it and also the fact that it's a kind of a failed reporting project. They, they find the people, they don't necessarily get a satisfying resolution. Um, and the piece is fundamentally, I think, not is insufficiently curious about the economics that would drive people to do this. But also these people seem like real baddies. It's very, it's a very interesting investigation, very smartly done, clearly a lot of time put into it. Um, and I'd be very curious for folks to listen to it and see what they think. So these episodes ran earlier this summer, uh, episode 102, Long Distance, and episode 103, Long Distance Part 2, from the Reply All podcast from Gimlet. I recommend them to our listeners. All right, June, thank you so much for ably filling Steve's chair. Thank you for having me. Dana, thanks as always. As always. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our interns this week were Daniel Schrader and Rachel Withers. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can find an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Also, we'll tell you last, because we always do, although I honestly don't know why, our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For June Thomas and Dana Stevens, I'm Julia Turner, and we'll see you soon. Tant ici j'en pleure, tu as tous les droits sur mon cœur.